This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name is Lena Rowland, managing editor of Walk.com. I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Lee, Chief Strategy Officer at BCCP and Chair of the APG, as well as Mark Hadfield, Strategy Partner at Cravens, a creative agency based in Newcastle in the north of England. Now, today we're here to talk about why strategists need to burst the strategy bubble and how to do this. Both Michael and Mark have launched really important initiatives in recognition of the need for people who work in advertising to speak and listen to people and communities from all sorts of diverse backgrounds so that we can better understand how consumers' lives play out across all of the UK. Now, this is particularly important for strategists who are tasked with understanding the consumer, what makes them tick, what motivates them, where their pain points are, etc., etc., Now, Michael, I'd like to start with you. Can you talk a little bit about VCCP Stoke Academy and why you launched it? Um, I I think the the seeds of uh, the the idea of launching VCCP Stoke Academy, I think, go back three, four years. It's a conversation with a colleague of mine, Jim Thornton. And we were both very conscious that we felt that the, the gene pool of people coming into advertising, especially entry level, was getting narrower and narrower. And it was very clear that um, there was definitely a southeast bias, I would say, to um, who was applying for work. And the more you looked at it, the more you just realized that it was increasingly difficult for the vast majority of, of, of people in the UK to even be aware that advertising exists and even if they wanted a job in advertising to be able to afford to move to where most of the agencies are which is in London and we use Stoke really as I guess a symbol of that because Jim is from Stoke and a massive Stoke City fan so it was always like well what what chance does a kid from Stoke have of of uh, of, of getting a job here and, and I think bizarrely over the pandemic the idea of Launching an office in Stoke became far more realistic because remote working um, proved to be doable. So I think initially we thought, well, we can launch a virtual office in Stoke. Um, And then we sort of realized that actually, first and foremost, it needs to focus on training. It needs to have more of an academy aspect to it. So we said, let's focus on three things. Let's focus on awareness, uh, raising visibility that the industry even exists, experience give young adults in stoke the chance to gain meaningful work experience that gives them the type of advantages that they're currently denied because they often can't afford to go where the experience work experience is and then create jobs in the local area because what we don't want is to a situation where people are being forced to leave their communities and their families in order to get a job in an industry they want to work in so that's really what uh, became our three aims and then um it just all sort of snowballed from there we started off doing um work experience projects with uh stoke six on college and uh, this was back in summer 2021 and uh I, I can't tell you just how much enthusiasm there was uh from 
the local university, Staffs University in particular, from other creative agencies, from local politicians. And just generally, it, it, it is mushrooming and mushrooming, and we're spending a lot more time in Stoke, um, which is a really good thing. And I think we have been now working with four sixth form colleges, um, doing careers fairs. We've just launched our apprenticeship scheme. We've just closed uh, applications for our first summer internship scheme. Um, and it's all going really well. And I think the really good thing is that all of this is an experiment. We haven't done this before. We've never had launched apprenticeships. We never launched internship schemes. But so far, they seem to be going quite well. But yeah, it's it, it's all a it's all a bit of a trial and error approach. And and so far, hopefully, we haven't made that many errors. A fantastic introduction. Thank you, Michael. And Mark, I'd like to bring you in now. Uh, you launched um, the project Meet the Eighty Five Percent last year. Can you tell us a bit more about this initiative? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's a little bit of what Michael's just said. It's a bit experimental, uh, I think. I mean, the kernel of it started when I was working out in Asia a few years ago. And uh, I was kind of do, do, doing the regional thing, working with a bunch of clients, uh, managing teams. But I found that the most interesting parts of the work uh, for myself was when I was actually getting out, kind of being uh, upfront and personal. Uh, with, with a lot of the uh, customers, influencers, etc. So whether that was speaking to mechanics in Indonesia, whether that was speaking to factory workers outside of Bangkok, I found it actually really rewarding getting on the call face and, and, and chatting to people. And there came a natural point of when uh, that role was going to end a, a, a couple of years ago. So my wife and I were chatting about what do we want to do? Where do we want to go? Uh, we, we, we kind of decided on the UK for a bunch of reasons, come back home. I'm originally from the Northeast. She's originally from London. Uh, I'd spent 15 years before that living and working in London. So that would have been the natural choice. But when we actually kind of stacked it up for personal and professional reasons, we, we thought it was actually better for us to, to get out of London. Uh, so so I, I looked at agencies around the Northeast. Uh, there aren't that many, uh, I think, further to Michael's point. Uh, but I, I, I kind of, I, I had Cravens in mind. They were the one agency that had been mentioned to me numerous times by various people. So I had some chats with Cravens. And to cut a long story short, part of the sell for Cravens was their client bases. Uh, it's got really interesting brands on there that appeal to the mass mainstream. So brands like First Bus, brands like Parked In Resorts. Uh, these probably wouldn't have been aspirational clients uh, in my old agency, if I'm being honest. But actually to me now, they, they really are. Um, so when I joined Cravens, I, I, I chatted to Phil, the MD, and Ian, the chairman, and said, Look, I, I, I'm really interested in bringing two, two sides of my passion together to kind of benefit the, the business in this, to, to use Michael's language, kind of experiment. And that was understanding people, getting close to them. But then also photography is something that I'm very passionate about. I'm, I'm far from being a professional, but it's something I actually really enjoy doing. So we, we thought about how can we bring those two sides together? Uh, I then remembered some statistics that I'd read in a Martin Weigel uh, presentation a number of years before, uh, which, which was, I think he said 87% of, of the, the comms industry was based in, inside London. So I, I got interested in that, kind of looked at the Office of National Statistics, depending on which figures you look at, it's around about eight, 85% uh, of, the, of the UK population lives outside of London 
what, 85% of the communications industry is based inside London. And Campaign wrote an article uh, which kind of quantified that, I think just over a year or so ago. So this, this imbalance got me really interested. And really then it was just a case of what can we do that we think is interesting in this? So it, I kind of picked up my camera, set up a website and started meeting people outside London. So it, it's really just to try and understand uh, the mass mainstream. Now, it's not to say the mass mainstream don't exist within London, because they absolutely do, but p purely by the numbers, they're about 15% of the UK population, and outside is, is 85%. So it's really a case of visiting people, chatting to them, or understanding their daily behaviours, daily habits, uh, understanding the, the ordinariness of them. I think in agencies, sometimes we're, uh, we're brief to look for the outliers and look for the interesting data, when in fact, actually, a lot of the time, it's normal. So yeah, it, it, it kind of, it's, it's, it's been born from that, a passion for photography and a passion for understanding kind of people and, and being sat opposite them as opposed to looking through gigabytes of data. Great, great. Thank you both very much for those introductions. And these are definitely um, obviously really worthwhile and much needed initiatives. It's probably fair to say that, that these, these initiatives are probably in the minority and that there is actually... Um, you know this issue with with the focus on inner inner cities, um, highly populated areas, and and you know there is this need to get out there and and speak to to more communities from more diverse backgrounds. Um, what is it? Do you think what what are some of the barriers for what's holding strategists back from actually from doing that? Um, I, I think you know two, the two years of being locked in our our, our, our rooms has, has not helped. Um, I've always said to, to my team of planners, take every opportunity to do qual research, you know, go to people's houses, um, get, get out of London because you know, fundamentally, I think that the attributes of a good planner are curiosity, you know, their empathy. Uh, and I think in particular, a, a desire to find about out about people who, whose lives are not like yours. Um, and I think, it's possible that in the tribalism and the, the filter bubbles of the modern day, we've forgotten that we're not all the same and, and that we're very different. Um, but I think, you know, this, this comes back to the sort of lack of diversity within the planning department. If, if you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that 100% of, of, of the strategy department and, and maybe even 100% of the agency voted to remain uh, in the Brexit referendum. That that does mean that you have a certain set of values and a view on the world that is arguably very different to half of the population. And I think as planners, we have a responsibility more than anyone else in our agency to go, right, well, given that we're all the same, we, we, we clearly don't know it enough. We don't even know that many people who voted for Brexit ourselves in our social lives. So it's our job to understand um, using forms of research like ethnography and like wall research to go, well, what are those motives? What are those values? Uh, and what are those frustrations that underpin that? And what impact does that have in terms of how people think about brands and how it affects their own you know, behavior as consumers on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, and I think, I think just to echo that point and build on it, I think I agree with everything Michael's just said. I think the reality of... of client briefs and planning departments kind of and and covid have brought a lot of pressure on on 
planners, strategists, I think, to, to find interesting answers uh, that, that, you know, kind of build from something uh, insightful. And I think there's probably two, two things that I think have been quite interesting. One is the role of big data and kind of the language around big data and the security of big data for, for clients. And then the one is kind of the speed on which we're now expected to operate. And not a day goes by where I don't go through my Twitter feed and somebody is commenting on the fact they've been given a week for a you know an integrated pitch. So it's like the, the reality then is what can you achieve in that time? And, and for as good as it is to get out and chat to five, 10, 20 consumers face to face, it takes a lot of time. So people mm. use a lot of the same resources. Uh, I mean, we, we've on the on the on the Meet the eighty five. What's been really beneficial recently to myself as a strategist is we've partnered with a, a research company called Flume, so Flume dot Group, and and they, they've actually helped me because I'm not a trained researcher. You know, I'm just interested in people, but they've really helped me flesh out how we chat to people when we're face to face with them to try and kind of pull out something interesting. So observation, reflection. You know, we have this mantra of acting more like Louis Theroux and less like Jeremy Paxman when we're when we're chatting mm-hmm. to them, and and that helps build these kind of these truths of one. But but it is still the, the kind of the context in which we operate is that it's quite difficult to convince a client of a strategy with a quote from one person when there's four gigabytes of data telling you something slightly different. So I, I think the kind of the speed of strategy and what we can achieve as strategists quickly and this kind of nobody ever got sacked for buying an IBM approach to big data. I think two things that make make it difficult, I think, to find texture around real people. Yeah, Michael, did you have anything to add there? Well, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, lack of time is the enemy of good insight. And I think, again, during the pandemic, we, we found ourselves having to pitch in, in often in half the time. Um, and, and yes, so you, you sort of have to, I guess, generate insight i think based off desk research which will typically be the same sources of desk research your competitive um your, your competitor agencies will also be using so that, that that room to find something original and different which i think comes from you know longer more qualitative forms of research i think is lost and you know i do think this is showing up in the work um i think you know, there are, there are many TV ad breaks where you're going, the idea seems to be we show a cross-section of society using our product. And you'll see quite a lot of ads like that. And I, and I do think that a lot of that lack of uh, an original narrative construct, you know, comes from the fact that we just haven't had time to generate interesting and original insight, you know, that can turn be turned into something with a, with a bit more of an emotionally engaging and original narrative. Yeah. So, so there's, I mean, this is, um, sounds like a, a, a wishful thinking, but a need, a need for slower strategy, I suppose, um, is, is, uh, what with, as you say, speed of strategy being the enemy of good insight. And actually that, you know, it's when you take that time to dig into communities and go that extra mile, you've actually got the competitive advantage because you're finding something new and different from, from what your competitors are looking at. It's really interesting. I, I think you do. I mean, big data fundamentally. You know, you're asking a specific answer, to, uh, uh, you know, from to a specific question. Um, qualitative research is by nature more exploratory. Ethnographic research is even more so because it's it's about observation rather than necessarily asking mm. a, a, a prescribed set of questions. But it does get you to the, you know, what's 
the unspoken needs, the the the, the less immediately obvious um, answers, and 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 in a level of emotional insight that I think has far more chance and potential of becoming something that is an emotionally engaging idea. And, and we know, no one is disputing that ideas with greater emotional engagement tend to be those that are more successful and more memorable. So you're, you're, you're right, it, it feels like a bit of a pipe group during when everything is getting faster, you know, that we, we're trying to make the case for slower strategy. But there is a, dare I say, a positive ROI to be gleaned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, how how do you implement that change then? I mean, you know, obviously that must come from from the top. That you know, strategists are given permission to to go out there and and you know, that's that's kind of like a culture change, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree totally. I, I think one of the things that I've I've often told the, the strategists that I've led, been part of, is. There are many correct answers, right? There are lots of good agencies around the world, lots of good agencies in London, lots of good agencies around the UK. And you can bet your bottom dollar that most of them are going to get the answer correct in inverted commas. But to Michael's point, it's how, how do you find the most interesting answer that, that you have a conviction behind? And, and I, I see a lot of strategists kind of feeling that pressure of, or oh, is this a correct answer? It's like, I don't think it's about correct or incorrect. It's about interesting convincing texture emotional to michael's point uh, so, so for me it's how do you find how do you use whatever data sources you have to find that interesting angle uh, and i think big data can tell us some things you know kind of desk-led research can tell us some things but i think spending that time to, to get out speak to people I, I think is incredibly valuable and you know it yes there is value on speaking to people on on zoom but what we find is actually sitting on the sofa with them, it just brings a lot of depth. Now, now yes, that, that might mean a few hours out of the office or, or a day out of the office, but that depth can actually bring a, a lot of inspiration, a, a, lot, a lot of strategic value, but a lot of creative inspiration too. I think it's easier to persuade a client to do that sort of longer form research. Uh, if they're an existing client, I think you know pictures are, are, are what they are now. They're just extremely fast. And there are lots of reasons, you know, why there is that 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 pressure to 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 run a pitch process as, as quickly as, as possible. Um, but I think with these existing clients, I think it's about being proactive. It's about going, look, there there is a need to focus on more long term challenges and look look three five years ahead. And this is where more of an ethnographic uh, approach is a better way to understand how people will feel about things um, that aren't just immediately we've got to launch a campaign and, and, and engage their reaction to that particular execution. I think it's more about the, the longer-term strategy of the brand and a long-term positioning, and, and that's where I think we've found, at least at VCCP, that the clients are far more open to the idea of doing that type of research. That's that's really interesting and really encouraging to hear because it is it is the clients, isn't it, that can that can really drive that change and that mindset by kind of giving teams permission to say, yeah, actually, I want to go deeper. I want to bring something new to the table, um, and creating that space to actually to do that. So that's really encouraging that clients are are you know have it taking that long term view. 
Um, so we've talked quite a bit about the role of ethnography and the need to move away from spreadsheets and dashboards. Yes, they serve a you know they serve a purpose, but um, you know the the need to kind of get deeper to kind of really understand um, local communities and what's concerning them. I mean, certainly there's a lot a lot to be concerned about at the moment um, in the UK and uh, further afield. So can you tell me a bit more on the subject of clients about how this kind of ethnographic approach and the immersive work that you guys are doing is being received by clients and and how that's, you know, how that's going down? Yeah, I mean, I I can I can give a couple of examples. I think Michael is uh, is, is spot on, you know, when it comes to a pitching scenario, an agency is trying to find competitive advantage very quickly. Uh, and there are multiple levers agencies can pull in that. And one of the things we are doing at Meet the 85 is, as well as working with clients, we're building up kind of a body of content around specific subjects uh, that help us dip in and dip out to, to find interesting angles. So, so it almost becomes a database, a repository of interesting ethnographic sound bites, if that makes sense. But from a from a client point of view, I mean, they've actually they've taken to it re- really well. I mean, we have a few clients uh, that that have leaned into it and actually asked us uh, uh, for a proposal. One of them uh, is going through a, a period where they're uh, re looking at their segmentation analysis. So they're looking at who are their existing customers, where's the headroom for growth, and of course that's all built from existing databases. It's built from you know kind of dashboards. It's built from socioeconomic data and they approached us and said actually we think there's a real opportunity to add some texture and depth to that so they're going to end up with a scientific overview of who their audiences are and we actually said to them we think there's real scope to add texture to that so we sent a proposal and said when you have your four or five segments we can go out and meet the real people they represent we can look through their cupboards we can ask them about specific behaviors uh, and thought processes as around, around your category and uh, adjacent categories. And, and that will actually help them not only understand their audience from a media comms point of view, but actually from a sales team point of view. They've got a lot of sales teams who are targeting people and giving them a scientific pen portrait that we used to in agency land would just be no use to them. So that's, that's one example. Another example is a client who we've been talking to and they they basically know the category inside out. They know everything there is to know about this specific category, but they don't know the, the interesting elements around the edges and how inflation uh, affects uh, the choice architecture of the consumer, uh, of how uh, habits, daily habits adjacent uh, to the category norms are affecting uh, the purchasing behaviors. Uh, and this particular client is is going through a period where they're thinking about their price elasticity and how much they can charge. So part of the conversation is going to be around their offering when it comes to inflation, but also what does that mean for other purchases that their customers are thinking about making? So it's really actually adding that kind of texture and depth to something that can be quite scientific. Lovely. Thank you. Michael, anything to, to add there? Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, Depth and texture is definitely what it adds. And, and I think it's a really good uh, counterpoint to a lot of the a lot of the very data-driven uh, analyses of you know the, the whole the end-to-end customer journey these days. You know, those those again looking at audience attitudes and responses to how they feel about a brand as they go from you know point A to point B on a customer journey is, is becoming more and more important. Um, how 
brands are perceived is increasingly being measured by how businesses perform uh, uh, along that customer journey. And, and uh, But what that does lack is that macro uh, context. You know, what is driving those decisions? What is driving what people want at that stage of the customer journey? And that's where this type of ethnographic research is really critical because so many macro factors affect how people feel at this particular point. It could be the dynamics of the family. It could be their concerns about the future. It, it could be, you know, like I say, you know, all the, the, the cost of living crisis and how that's going to affect them personally. And you cannot get that type of context into a typical NPS type uh, a, a approach to looking at customer satisfaction and, and, and studying decision making. And this is not a, you know, A versus B argument at all it's a plus b um and um you know that ability to combine information which is a combination of facts and feelings is to me just common sense um so i, I think any smart client recognizes the need to invest in both types of of, of insight uh and you know that's why I, I i don't feel you know, pessimistic that something like ethnography is, is, is becoming obsolete because it's it's so obvious its value that mm. um, I, I think, you know, most smart clients will, will not dismiss it. Lovely. Thank you. So, look, there's, um, there's a two-pronged approach to this, isn't there? There's one that's like making sure that we're doing the work, speaking to people that are different to to ourselves um so speaking to to all communities up and down the country and understanding them and making that extra effort to to go deeper um and there's also as, as we've touched upon earlier the need to diversify our teams um to to employ people from from all sorts of backgrounds to bring that richness to to our teams and our thinking so this is um particularly you know speaks to to what what you know your initiative michael that you've launched with vccp stoke now i just wondered if there's any advice for you know how to get started on on that you know there's people are you know make, taking steps uh to to diversify teams but how to keep that going that it's not just a momentary thing and uh, any advice there really like I, th I think the best thing is the right thing to do and it also makes complete commercial sense um the, the fact of the matter is that you know the industry as a, as a whole has a talent crisis um and I think that's been driven by a certain degree of complacency that the talent will always want to come to us because we're, you know, one of the shiniest and coolest professions in the world. And a certain blindness, you know, that 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 denial that actually our talent's coming from an increasingly narrow socioeconomic group. And my fundamental view is that we distinguish ourselves from management consultants because we come up with interesting lateral original ideas that tend to come from inside people's heads and in order to get that range and originality of ideas you tend to need a range of people with different life experiences because that is typically the stimulus for where those ideas come from so it it, it makes economic sense um, to have the best quality people with the highest and most diverse range of ideas um, so diversity to, to me makes commercial and 
ideological, if that's the right word, sense. In, <laughs> and, um, you know, a, a, a little thing that um, we hadn't realised but is really, uh, you know, an issue is that we have many people who we've lost in our industry because um, typically when they start families, the cost of living in London just suddenly becomes, you know, almost unsustainable. So many people have left London, have gone back to, um, let's say, for example, the Northwest, purely because that's where more family is and that's where the cost of living is is lower and it's, it's, it's affordable and sustainable. Um, we have a number of employees that we would have lost uh, for that exact reason. And because of VCP Stoke existing now and their ability to work uh, based in Stoke, um, and because hybrid working has now proven to be perfectly achievable, uh, we have kept. Mm -hmm. And I think the value of being able to retain your best talent is just huge, especially these days. Um, so I, I don't see why it's that difficult an argument. It's just actually in the end about the will to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Mark, anything to add on, on this point? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm one of those people. I mean, I had options to move back to London. You know, the, the traditional career common sense move would have been to go back to London, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But our choice was actually made pre-COVID. So it, it was it was a bit scary. You know, it was scary to say, actually, I, I don't want to go back to London. I want to go to, in inverted commas, the regions. And there were some people that looked at me kind of funnily <laughs> and, and thought that I had made a weird decision, strange decision. Uh, some people actually kind of said I'd given up and retired, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is interesting. But of course, then COVID hit and, and people see that life is kind of what we make it. And, and I, I guess my experience at Cravens so far has been nothing but positive. And there are lots of agencies like Cravens outside of London. And, and there are lots of agencies like Cravens in London, but the environment is, is a different environment being outside of London to inside of London. And how we're perceived by potential clients, by potential talent, by the media. Uh, I, I think it, it does bring a certain amount of baggage that I think needs to be changed. I think it is changing. I think the great stuff that VCCP are doing with the Stock Academy is definitely helping with that. Uh, the Northwest is a burgeoning environment create, creatively. There's a lot going on. And if you actually kind of scratch the surface, there's lots of amazing talent that have just made an active choice to not want to do it in London. Uh, but I think the 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 industry, because it is so London centric, kind of is still adjusting to the fact that it is possible to achieve your career ambitions, have a decent work life balance, and and earn a fair amount of money. I think those three things, and certainly in all the agencies I've worked in, have been kind of at at tension with each other uh, in in different ways throughout my career. So I think the the you know the diversity angle, you know, bringing different people together is is why I think. The communications industry, marketing industry is, to Michael's point, different to management consultants, you know, because you know, original creative ideas or recombinant creative ideas are what make what we do, I think, really exciting. And, and you get that by bringing different people together. So I'm conscious of time. Uh, is there anything else that you would both like to add before we close this session, whether the, whether it's kind of like further um, work that you're doing in this space or anything that you'd like to add before we close off, guys? 
I would just say going back to, I guess the benefits of ethnography. I mean, I, you know, we spent quite a lot of time working with sixth formers and, and students in at Staffs Uni and, and in Stoke, and it, it's quite sobering because the you know you say oh we we do TV ads for O2 and compare the market and Cadbury's and they're like okay. <laughs> um, when you go, oh, we built the O2 in Fortnite. It's like, oh, wow, that's really good. Do what you, yes, there are jobs like that, are there? And I, and I think, you know, we, I, again, I think this is a problem of being in London, being surrounded by people going, yeah, TV ads are, are great. And they are the, the sort of the absolute pinnacle of, of, of status and, and, and what we revere. Um, and, and you, you, it, it's really good thing to sort of have that reality check. And realise that what we have revered as an industry, you know, for the past 30, 40 years uh, is is very different to what is impressive to that new generation of creatively minded talent that we need to be recruiting. So we have an image problem. We're not very good at promoting the bits that are most impressive. You know, we're still talking about Cannes and 60 Second Ads and Guinness Surfer and whatnot and... Uh, I, I think you know that's 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 a bigger issue, which um, I think we collectively have to get better at doing. Great, thank you, thank you, Michael and Mark. I think from my point of view, building on what Michael's just said, I spent a long time in my career trying to fit in, trying to kind of be, be a pigeonhole and kind of fluff out the CV with the right brands and the right categories. And it's only recently, as I've got older, that I've found the confidence to actually not so much fit in, but be comfortable with the shape of planner I am and be comfortable with my strengths and weaknesses. And I used to see my background, where I was from, my accent, you know, my, my kind of non-traditional background in planning as a weakness. But to Michael's point, I think it brings great strength. And I, I think, you know, particularly in a in a planning or strategy department that's built up of kind of the, the best of both worlds of planners who have been, let's say, kind of taught the taught the ropes in the traditional way, mixing and creating friction with non-traditional planners. So to that point of VCCP Stock Academy and kind of, and having a, a I guess a, a different way into the industry is, is don't be scared of being different. Be, be, be proud and confident that you're different because to Michael's point, that's what the industry needs. You know, we, we need people who are different. So don't try and hide those differences actually play on them and, and bring those differences to the table. And I think as an industry, that would benefit us all. Michael, Mark, thank you so much for such a rich and, and in, in my view, fascinating conversation. It was really, really enjoyable um, to really interesting to listen to what you had to say on this topic. It's such an important topic. So thank you. Now, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Walk Podcast on your favourite podcasting platform. Thank you for listening. <laughs>